I'd like to invite you to turn with me in our continuing study of Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry of preaching. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If we go back to verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Now that takes us back to chapter 3, verse 13, for just a moment as we're retracing some of the steps of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So he had come from Galilee for a purpose, and now he was going to go back to Galilee. Jesus was coming to Judea. He was coming to the area of the Jordan River there to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now he was returning to Galilee. The baptism did take place. And if you look again in chapter 3 at verse 17, something very interesting takes place something very dramatic. It's hard for us to picture how significant, how important this is, but in verse 17, as Jesus was coming out of being baptized, it says, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the baptism took place God identified Jesus as his son in verse 17, also proclaimed his love and pleasure for him. Now, what happened after that? Can you picture Jesus has been baptized and then God's voice from heaven affirming his love and his pleasure in his very son? What a high moment that must have been to be affirmed by God the Father in a public way such as he was. Well, what happened after that? Mark adds an interesting comment, and I won't ask you to turn to it, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, right after the baptism, it says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And do you remember what happened in the desert? We saw that last week. In the desert, Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. He had fasted, and then the devil was tempting him in those three ways that came upon him. So the temptation of Jesus took place immediately after his baptism and the stirring endorsement by his father. Jesus went from an ultimate high down to the depths of 40 days of fasting and then the temptation from Satan. There are any number of examples in the Bible of great testing, trouble, trials, enemy attacks after times of success or notable victories. You may think some examples come to mind. To me, a very big one would be Elijah. 
Remember the great success that God gave Elijah on Mount Carmel when the prophets of Baal were stunned and actually later killed after they saw God rain fire down on the wet altars. What a great moment for Elijah. And shortly after that, he was fleeing for his life. He was in a deep depression. He wanted to die. Sometimes those high moments are quickly followed by those low moments. We've got to be on guard, the scripture tells us. We've got to put on the full armor of God, and we've got to do it every day. When do you feel you're most vulnerable to the attacks from the evil one? At what point? Is it when you're high up like Jesus was, or is it when you're weak and lowly? And the answer is yes, because we're attacked at all points. Scripture makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You think everything is going well, everything's prosperous, everything's successful. Be very, very careful because you can be easily attacked at those high points. And you know that we'll be attacked in our weakness and we'll be attacked everywhere else as well. Well, we've seen an important sequence of events so far. Three decades have come and gone since Jesus' birth. Now think about that. There was a lot said in the Gospels about Jesus' birth. And then it alludes to the fact that he grew like most people do. He grew in wisdom and stature with God and man. And then there's one event that takes place when he's about age 12, a surprise visit to the temple. At least it surprises his parents. They don't quite know where he is and and find him there in the temple speaking with individuals. But all of a sudden now, after 30 years of virtual silence, it's God's time for Jesus' ministry to accelerate. And it does. It's incredible to see the picture of what is there, the snowball rolling down the hill, getting faster and bigger all the time. After just sitting there for 30 years, nothing recorded, nothing much recorded, now all of a sudden things are happening very, very quickly. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, it says. God's voice from heaven confirmed Jesus' credentials. At once, Jesus was led into the desert and decisively defeated Satan's temptations. He passed a credibility test at that particular point. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now Jesus, about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Did you ever wonder why it took that long? Why, if he was only going to be on the earth about 33 years, why only three years of ministry? Why 30 years of working in a carpenter's shop? Why 30 years of just being there among the people? I don't know the answer to that question, except that I know that it was the perfect plan because that's the way God made it to be. But I also know that the snowball is rolling down the hill very quickly at this point. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it said, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit And news about him spread through the whole countryside. Everything was now ramping up in a big way. So in the account before us this morning, I'd like for us to see how this accelerates and accelerates. There are four questions that emerge. One of them may seem a little odd. What happened between chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 12? If you look there, you'll say, nothing happened except in my Bible. There's a little break, and it has a heading. 
But the devil left him in verse 11. The angels came and attended him. And in verse 12, Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. He returned to Galilee. So what happened between verse 11 and verse 12? The short answer is that a whole lot happened and almost an entire year elapsed between those two verses. In fact, one of the commentaries puts it this way. Matthew compresses what he refers to as the early Judean ministry of Christ into this very short statement. After his temptation, Jesus apparently went briefly to Cana of Galilee for the wedding and the miracle at the wedding feast. Then he returned to Jerusalem for the Passover, that's recorded in John 2, at which time he performed a number of miracles and cleansed the temple. Then came his interview with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 during which time we read John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, shall not perish, but have eternal life. He also, at, during that time, had his journey through Samaria, recorded in John chapter 4, on his way back up to Galilee, where he had that discussion with the woman at the well. So from John's gospel, not from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but from John's gospel, we fill in a gap here of almost a year between verses 11 and 12. Why didn't the other Gospels mention it? They didn't need to. They were writing purposefully, and this didn't accomplish their purposes when they were writing. But John had a different purpose in mind. So what happened between chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 12? A whole lot happened almost an entire year. But we again see God's timing in what is going on. Things are accelerating. A lot was going on during that time. Once it started, it was difficult for it to stop. Second question. Also, we're picking up from verse 12. Why did Jesus return to Galilee when he heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison? What kind of a signal was that? John's in prison, so it's time to go back to Galilee. Why did he do that? First, a word about Galilee. Galilee, sometimes referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, was geographically and politically cut off from Judea. We know that Samaria was between those two areas. And it also had a less predominantly Jewish population. Yes, in Galilee there were Jews. There were also a lot of Gentiles who were there. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles, one portion of it. Now here's something that we don't often hear. Galilee's people were regarded by the Judeans, that is the people to the south around the Jerusalem area. The Galileans were regarded as uncultured and even irreligious. There's a lot of evidence of strained relations between those two areas in the New Testament times. So as a Galilean in Jerusalem, Jesus was virtually a foreigner. I'll say more about the people in Galilee because a lot of times we hear about the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans uh, were known to have literally hated each other. But the Jews in Judea and the people up in Galilee didn't hate each other as intensely, but they didn't respect each other at all. There was no great love between those two areas. And we'll hear a little bit more about that later on. But why did Jesus return to Galilee when he heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison. And the first thing we need to know is not because he was afraid. He wasn't reasoning, John the Baptist got arrested, and so they're going to be coming after me next. That was not in Jesus' mind at all. Why was that not in his mind? Well, he was actually going right into the heart of Herod's kingdom. 
the same Herod that imprisoned John and had him beheaded. But you know somebody's not afraid of somebody else when he stands up to him and calls him a fox and basically tells him he's going to do whatever he wants to do and he doesn't care what that fox says. Because you may remember later on somebody came to Jesus and said, Herod's after you, he's trying to kill you, you better get away from here. And you remember Jesus' response. Jesus' response was, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. That's in Luke 13, 22. Jesus understood that Herod could not touch him until the time was exactly God's time. No, Jesus didn't return to Galilee because he was afraid of Herod. Jesus had other reasons for going there other than that. And one of them is that John's arrest signaled the next phase of God's perfect plan. And this was all part of a divine timetable that we can see very clearly that is going on. Now, with regard to that, there's something else going on that would make it necessary for Jesus to leave Judea to avoid the complications that went along with success. That sounds a little odd. But Jesus' ministry was beginning to succeed And because of that, we're told in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus didn't want to let success spoil the plan at that particular time. He wanted to get out of Judea. It was God's time for him to go to Galilee. And again, not because he was afraid, but because the plan was working itself out perfectly. Remember later on, several times, Jesus would speak of his hour not yet coming. Do you catch that? His hour had not yet come. This was a precise timetable. And Jesus knew this is not the time in Jerusalem to get everything rolling with all the Jews around Jerusalem. Um, The things that happened during the triumphal entry later on, even though it turned sour, this is not the time for that to happen now. So we've got Jesus also speaking of his hour having arrived later on down the road. So it was not yet his hour, and then his hour had arrived. He's not even talking about a time frame, a day or a month or a year. He's talking about the hour had not yet come. God is in complete control. And God's timing is always perfect. Here's the picture, though, that some of us have. Some of us don't always understand God's delays because we want things to happen pretty quickly. Sometimes we just don't understand the delays. We would like to see things happening right away. We want to be healed now. We want to be out of pain right now. We're praying for the salvation of somebody that we love. We want that person to be saved immediately. We want a new job or any kind of a job, but we want it now because we understand what's happening in our own financial situations. We need that money at this time. Some of us are looking for the attention of that special someone, and it's not coming And that's something that we don't understand. We've been praying about it for a long time. There are other areas close to our heart. Why isn't God answering my prayer now? Please understand that God knows what's going on. Everything else today seems to come instantly. And so we wonder, why not instant gratification? There's nothing wrong with getting what I want when I want it. 
We have instant coffee. We've got instant news, don't we? You want to find out if anything's happening in the Ukraine today. You're not going to have to wait for a couple of weeks or a couple of months like we used to have to wait to hear what was going on in the world. You can hear about it as it's happening, literally as it's happening. The same thing with the weather. You want to get the latest weather report, uh, it doesn't have to be a long-term forecast. It's right there for us right now. And best of all, you don't have to wait for scores. Isn't that, isn't that great? Do you remember when we used to have to wait for scores, wait for the paper to come in some cases, but they're there all the time. But God's plan and God's timing are always perfect, always precise, regardless of whether we have the patience sometimes to wait for it to unfold. Remember, for 30 years, Jesus appeared to be in limbo. He appeared to be on hold, at least from the argument of silence that we see from the gospel writers. John's arrest signaled a new phase of ministry. The time was now right. Do you realize the time would not have been right when Jesus was 15 or 21 or 28? The time was right now. At first, Mary and Martha didn't understand Jesus' timing when their brother Lazarus was sick and dying. They couldn't understand why Jesus delayed. Why didn't he come right away? He could have helped. He could have done something. But I'll bet if you went back to them after Lazarus was raised from the dead and you questioned Jesus' timing, I'll bet you they wouldn't have a problem with it then. There wouldn't have been any difficulty with them at all. Some of you know the name Joe Stoll. He's often been a favorite of mine. Um, he's doing writing now more than he's doing preaching, but... He wrote this. He said, the old adage is true. Timing is everything. And that's why Paul's statement, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He said, that's why that statement intrigues me so much. And then he says something that you've heard many times before. I know you have from, from this pulpit. A quick look at history reveals that the coming of Christ was at just the right time. Centuries earlier, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world, bringing with him the Greek culture and language. On the heels of his demise, the Roman Empire picked up where Alexander left off and expanded the territory under the unifying influence of the culture and language of the Greeks. It was under Roman rule that the crucifixion took place, where the blood of Christ was shed for us. It was under the rule of Rome that conditions were made ready for the spread of the gospel across three continents— Good roads, territorial boundaries free of passport uh, restrictions, and a unifying language. The providence of God had put all the pieces in place for the perfect time to send his son. God's timing is perfect in everything. And he says this in, in conclusion of his little article, While you are awaiting, perhaps wondering why God doesn't seem to be acting on your behalf, Remember that he's working behind the scenes to prepare his moment of intervention at just the right time. Trust him. He knows what time it is. It wasn't God's plan that John would be eclipsed before Jesus shone forth. Do you understand the problem that would have occurred or could have occurred if Jesus and John were there together ministering gathering crowds on both sides and ultimately maybe competing with each other in the minds of the people, just like it was in Corinth, 
you're of Paul, you're of Apollos, this little segment of people is for Peter, and this faction's for somebody else, uh, wasn't a good thing for that to have happened. Someone has said the moon and stars are lost when the sun rises, and the sun had just arisen, and it was necessary for the moon and the stars to go away. Very interesting about the timetable. And one other commentator says this, John the Baptist's imprisonment and death, just as his heralding the King of Kings, were in God's divine plan and timetable. The end of the herald's work signaled the beginning of the kings. Herod and Herodias believe they freely controlled their province and certainly the destiny of this insignificant Jewish preacher who dared condemn them. It is amazing how the proud and arrogant think they act in perfect freedom to accomplish their selfish ends, when in truth their decisions and actions only trigger events that God scheduled before the foundation of the world. And so God's time, God's purpose, God's plan, everything was coming together in such a way that it was necessary for Jesus now to go up to Galilee. And that's where we would go. And as we study Matthew together, he's going to remain in Galilee. Sometimes we don't realize this. He's going to remain up there all the way through chapter, up to chapter 21 when he comes back for the triumphal entry. A lot of Matthew is going to take place in Galilee. And here's a question, third question that comes to mind. What is significant about the move from Nazareth to Capernaum? You look at verse 13, and you can see that it says not much, it, it basically just says, leaving Nazareth. Two words. Two words, Matthew says, leaving Nazareth. What's important about that? And as we look at those, we realize that there's more to the story than Matthew takes time to give us in his gospel. There's more going on because Jesus went to Nazareth, but he left Nazareth where he had grown up. But he left when the people there got very angry at the exact point, he proclaimed salvation for the hated Gentiles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we'll see this together. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And I might add, at least at first they did. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Please feel this moment right now. Feel what's happening. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They wanted to see what it is that he had to say about that great messianic prophecy. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now please keep in mind, that was not a Jewish person. And this is what is going to upset them because he's speaking about Gentiles and help coming to the Gentiles. He continues, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And he might just as well have said the Gentile, the non-Jew. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But it's not God's time for him to be thrown off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So we have a situation leaving Nazareth, Matthew says. Well, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that. He left Nazareth. And then he went on to Capernaum. Capernaum was by the Sea of Galilee, an area originally that was propagated or populated by the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. This area had long been known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So Jesus went to Capernaum. From then on, it was his headquarters. It was a strategic town. It was much more of a crossroads than Jerusalem even. There was a famous trade route known as the Way of the Sea nearby. One ancient writer said that that Judea was on the way to nowhere, whereas Galilee was on the way to everywhere. Now let's take a look on the screen, if you will, and identify some of these places just to get something in mind. You'll notice Judea that we talk about. That's where Jerusalem is. Here's Judea to the south. You'll notice Samaria now in the middle of the sandwiching of Galilee and Judea. So here's Galilee here. Here's the Sea of Galilee with other names in the Scriptures. Uh, You'll notice now the inset here, which takes us from this area of the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee again. Nazareth is down here in the corner. And then Capernaum is up at the top here near the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. So you can see when the traveling goes on, when we're going from Jerusalem, and you've got to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, and then you come up here, and right about at this point is where you're going to see Capernaum. Now, as we, as we see this, what we're finding out in the Scriptures, once again, Jesus was now in the perfect place at the perfect time to fulfill more prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you look at verse 14, the reason he ended up there was to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So we have a picture comparing Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 that I just read 
with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And we've been through the whole Christmas season, Christmas from the Hebrew Scriptures, Easter, Easter from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now it's a normal Sunday morning through the Hebrew Scriptures. We can't escape the Hebrew Scriptures and the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we look a little bit further, we're going to be able to see something else that is here. Uh, here is the Sea of Galilee again. I told you it had other names, the Sea of Chinnereth and Lake Tiberias and other things. But you'll see wrapped around the west part of this is Naphtali. And here's Zebulun over here. These are the two areas that the light is supposed to come on. And the light is coming to a very darkened Gentile populace at this particular point and some Jews who happen to be there. But Isaiah predicted eight centuries earlier that these people that are described as the despised, sin-darkened, and rebellious Galileans were the first to get a real glimpse of the Messiah, to see the dawning of God's new covenant. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't the city that everyone gave honor to. It was the place of Gentiles, to those who were absolutely the neediest that Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, part of God's plan. Final question, what was Jesus' message? What was Jesus' message? And it was a very brief message in chapter 4, verse 17. The same message that John the Baptist had, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the king was there. But they rejected the king. In his hometown, they rejected him. Then they rejected him in Jerusalem. And now the king will be coming again another time because of that rejection. Even Capernaum rejected the Lord Jesus. You may remember some of the words that Jesus said about Capernaum later on. We'll see it when we get to Matthew chapter 9. Capernaum is referred to as his city, the city of Jesus. But two chapters later in Matthew chapter 11... Jesus said, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. Capernaum, it has so perished as a city that people can't even tell where it is today. It's argued whether this is where it was or that is where it was, and they do have their tourist traps, but basically it only exists for the Christian tourists to come in and wonder, was this really where Capernaum was? And yet that's where Jesus called the fishermen to follow him. It's where he called Matthew. It's the scene of many miracles, we're told, and we're given some specifics. The centurion's son, the nobleman's son, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, the paralytic, he cast an unclean spirit out of there. Probably that's where he raised Jairus' daughter to life. It was in Capernaum the little child was used to teach the disciples humility while in the synagogue Jesus delivered his ever-memorable discourse on the bread of life. What happened? Well, the Lord Jesus was in his own city. He was in the city of his birth and where he grew up in Nazareth and then Capernaum, his city, and the people still rejected him. Don't expect that everyone you share with about Christ will be receptive. Don't take it personally if they reject you unless you are personally obnoxious. Then you can take it personally. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1. We'll summarize John chapter 1. 
it will bring us to where we are in our study to this point and show us the reason why things are happening the way they're happening. Jesus is preaching a message of repentance. Some people are responding, but other people are the same old people that they always were. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He. We know that the Word is a person, and we know that it's Jesus. Can't help but see that as we keep reading. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Remember the light that was going to be shining in those two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. So the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man. Let me stop there just for a moment. That's why Jesus was in Galilee. That's why he was there with the rejects. That's why he was there with the Gentiles. Jesus didn't come just to save Jews. He came to save everyone, everyone who was lost. So the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And I hope that we've celebrated and exalted his glory this morning. Message of salvation to the whole world. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Part of God's perfect plan, part of God's perfect timing, not just in the big things, but in the things that pertain to you and to me, the things that trouble us and bother us. And God says, trust me with all of your heart. I know what time it is, and I know what the plan is that's unfolding. Heavenly Father, thank you that our confidence is in you, and thank you for your plan that secured our salvation. Thank you for what Jesus went through for us. And thank you that by placing our faith and trust in him, acknowledging that we're sinners, we can invite him to be our savior, to come into our lives, to help us to be who he wants us to be. Thank you for letting us see more of this today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.